0: Greetings and welcome back to the Matt Asher Show, otherwise known as The Filter, otherwise known as, well, we'll just have to see. You may have noticed it's been a while since the last podcast episode dropped. A few things have happened since then, but before I get to those, and you will want to stick around for the episode itself, I don't want to tease it too much, but let's just say that it is explosive and very much worth listening to. But before I get to the explanation before the episode, let me just say a big thanks to those of you who reached out to me during this time without episodes to ask, where are those episodes? It's because of your feedback that I am picking back up the podcast, at least for now, What have I been up to in that time? I now have two young children. My wife gave birth to twins this past March, and I'm beginning my second full round of parenting. That has certainly taken up some of my time. I also finished up work on a work of fiction that I had been working on for a very long time. I don't like to call it a novel because it's more like a fictional document complete with illustrations and a completely different physical format. To be specific, it's printed as a scroll. You can Go to that's lyca.com, that's L-Y-C-A dot to find out how to get a copy. Also, if you are a subscriber to my Substack, mattasher.substack.com, you can request a free physical copy of the trailer. Paid subscribers will get a full copy when it comes out to the general public or maybe even a bit sooner and i should say there's nothing like the actual object in terms of a total reading experience uh, another plug for the substack itself while we're at it it features the same kind of dystopian speculation that you sometimes get with this podcast along with sober analysis of current trends and forces as free from my own biases as possible Paid subscribers also get insights from my experience as an investor with a particular focus on the idea of lifestyle investing or how to fuse good living with good returns. For now, though, let's get to the long-delayed next episode, which was recorded originally in the early part of this year for the radio show I was doing at the time. Today, I am in studio with two folks. One of them will be familiar to people who have been listening to the podcast version of the radio show for a long time. That is Pete Quinones, who has his own podcast, The Pete Quinones Show, right?
1: That is correct. How are you?
0: Good, good. Good to see you again, Pete. And I'm also here with Bird, who has a podcast called Timeline Earth. Timeline Earth, yeah. My my pride and joy, yep. Great to have you both down here. One of the topics I've heard you both discuss at times is the Unabomber, Ted Kaczynski. And you both had some really interesting things to say about him. Not a person that one would think there would be that many interesting things to say about, but it seems like they are. I want to start by asking you, What makes this guy, and for the audience that doesn't know, he was uh, the Unabomber, was a guy who sent out through the mail bombs that killed scientists and other university-related folks. That's why he was the Unabomber. What makes him an interesting person?
1: Well, Theodore John Kaczynski was, I think at the time, the youngest man ever to graduate Harvard. He ended up getting a PhD in math, which is pretty impressive unto itself. He ended up teaching at Harvard, but he at some point decided he was going to go to a cabin in Lincoln, Montana and plot the destruction of modern technology. Um, One interesting thing that is just about proven at this point I would like to see a few more sources on it there is evidence that he may have been in trials at Harvard that were related to the MK Ultra project
0: and what was MK Ultra
1: it has been revealed by the CIA that the MK Ultra project was a was a way to administer psychedelics heavy psychedelics mostly LSD to participants, and sometimes unwilling participants, to try to create mind control, to create assassins, to create many things. And everything that has been declassified is scary, to say the least. Obviously, you will see people using it to give overdoses of LSD to men who, of women that they were interested in, like CIA agents would do this to make them go crazy, send them into mental hospitals. They also dosed a whole town in France, the, the water supply in France, mm-hmm. <laughs> which is in, which is insane to think about. But getting back to Theodore John, or as we know him, the Unabomber, Teddy K. I call him Uncle Ted. Uncle Ted. When he went and decided that he we needed to destroy technology. For some reason, he thought mailing bombs to universities and to certain people in universities to blow them up would kickstart this. No rhyme or reason to it, really, but he did write a manifesto, Industrial Society and Its Future. And what the manifesto shows is an incredible analysis of the American culture, especially of the American left. And also an analysis of human nature, which had been, some people had touched on before previous, but I've started applying it to looking at things in my own life and to people around me that I know by their actions. And some of his analysis of human psychology is so spot on, he cannot be ignored. And...
0: And I, I want to get into that. But first, before we get too far down that way, how do we know about this manifesto? How did it come to light? You know?
2: Well, I believe it was, um, was it midway through the, the bombings? Um, he had sent a letter, was it to the New York Times? Yes. And when he sends a letter to the New York Times, his basic request was, I will stop doing this as long as you publish my manifesto. So he'd been working on the manifesto. I mean, some people think he'd been working on the manifesto since he was in college. Uh, But he'd been working on the manifesto, uh, which you, Pete, you were doing, uh, you did a whole read through of it with my co-host. He wanted to get this published in the New York Times so that other people could see it. And uh, he had succeeded
1: in that, but he did not stop. Well, he, he ended up getting it. He sent it to the Times and the Washington Post. Right. The Times did not print it. The Washington Post ended up printing it. Mm-hmm. And it was it was crazy because every, people went nuts. They're like, why are you putting this out there? Right. But it did eventually end up <laughs> leading to his arrest because his brother recognized the writing style as his own brothers and turned him in.
0: His brother must have had some suspicions then from the get-go. There there was a particular phrase that he used. Do you remember what the phrase was?
2: There was a phrase that he'd only ever heard his brother use, and the phrase pops up in the manifesto, and I think that's what that combined with the writing style. Ted was always a notorious writer, still is to this day. I think the matching of the writing style and the particular phrases
0: that he used is what ended up uh, triangulating that down to Ted. And how did you guys end up Reading, what put it on your radar as something that you might be interested in
1: reading? Oh, oh, word of mouth. Yeah, Somebody just says, hey, have you ever read the Unabomber's Manifesto? It's like, no, why would I want to read that? And like, it's free online. So you just, all right, I'll check it out. And it's just over 100 pages. And you read it, and you start reading it, and you're like, he pulls you in, especially if you're a right-winger. You're going to be pulled in immediately because he just jumps in criticizing the left, specifically the American left. And he may have one of the greatest analyses of why the left is, particularly in this country, and particularly like the, the social justice left, the activist left, I mean, pretty much he nails their psychology and remember he's writing this in the late 80s early 90s and he gives perfect examples that are applicable today you can just look and you can be like oh this whole social justice culture that we've seen really come to the forefront in the last 10 years he's writing about that 20 25 years ago he's almost predicting it he seems to be a prophet you know, he has another writing called the systems' needest trick where he it, it almost which he wrote in 2005 which seems to predict the rise of the anti-fa movement. There's a good chance that you can find something in there that'll tell you what's going to happen 10 years from now. I've wanted
2: you to talk about just this specifically, but like for Ted, one of the keys to understanding the psychology that he tries to explain is over-socialization. Yeah. Uh, can you
1: explain that to me? Sure. Over-socialization, the way he describes people... As far as their and why is this applicable in the COVID age, of how they basically bow down to authority and especially government authority, he calls it socialization. So your socialization level is dependent upon how much you trust the government. And or trust authority in general, I would say you could apply that to the press now as well, even big tech. And he says that the American left is over-socialized in that. They believe everything that the government says. They do not They do it unquestioningly. If the government says that there's a chance, if Texas is talking about secession and some government bureaucrat says that's going to lead to slavery, a, re, a rebirth of slavery in Texas, the over-socialized will pick up on that and believe it. Do you think that
0: they actually believe it or do you think that they just recognize in that expression, a narrative that can be used against their enemies. Because I often think that very few of the people who will parrot the, you know, the the slogans, the narratives are actually genuinely worried or concerned about what they're, you know, what, about the substance of what they're parroting. And I think much more often, it's just like, oh, it's very clear that if we say this, this is going to rile up our opposition or this is a useful tool to smite them with it's a mind worm that can be used like horse dewormer to kind of to to you know to hit them
1: well to quote a famous meme why not both see i think that what happens is you have the leaders in the movement who the opportunists who see something like that, and they're like, okay, this is a good narrative, let's put it out there. And then all of a sudden, the drones, which is, let's use Pareto, 80% run with it, while 20% are guiding it. And 80% don't believe in it. One in five, One in five don't believe in it. 80% of the other four believe in it, and just run with it and preach it like it's religion, like it's like it's a part of their it's dogma. Yeah,
2: I think that's exactly right because I, I mean, you can see this with, you know, like you said, horse dewormer. Rogan was taking horse dewormer. That was a thing that went around for a while. And and I know people who genuinely believed that uh, they thought he was taking a medication for horses. Uh, Kyle Rittenhouse shot three African Americans. Uh, we all remember that. That was a. Uh, I I know people personally who were surprised at the end of the hearing when he was found innocent that there was no African Americans involved. Uh, so I, I think probably at, at a surface level, that 80% that you're talking about genuinely believe what they hear. Um, and it's easy because it's, it's uh, maybe buzzwords is a good word for it. But it's it's easy for them to believe it, probably because the entirety of the media sets up society around that, that story to make it seem like that story is more believable. So how does
0: that fit in with the idea of over socialization versus just a level of credulousness
1: or gullibility? It's all inclusive it's all included in that. it over socialization are over socialized people are people who are more apt to believe the narrative and that's being put out there and not question it. And we can get when we start talking about when Ted gets into human psychology, we can start talking a little bit about why that is and why he puts that out there. Um, he doesn't really say why. People would be right or people would be left, except other than it seems like the people who are more prone to the left are more prone to over socialization. And the people who are more prone to be right aren't aren't socialized. Not not to the extent. They're still going to believe that there are weapons of mass destruction in in um Iraq, but a lot of that will have to do with fear. The left isn't doing things out of fear fear they're doing things because they're doing things to fill a hole and we'll talk about that well just
0: uh, tell me about that right now and then to what extent you think Kaczynski picks up on
1: that okay so the power process is what he calls it and it's interesting it goes to evolution He ba- he says we come from a people who had to kill their own food had to kill in order to protect themselves, had to build their own structures, had to do everything for themselves physically. He says that that is still in our DNA. And because we don't have to do that anymore, we feel we we unconsciously feel an emptiness and it causes an emptiness and it causes a sadness, it causes depression and it causes us to try to fill, that void of the natural things that we we do which are violent things where we have to exert an energy in order to do it where we're burning off this part of us by doing by building a house by killing an animal by skimming and and cooking an animal by killing a potential predator even if it's a human that we don't we're not doing that anymore so we're filling that void with something else and he calls those things surrogate activities. And in the left, particularly, he points towards social justice. And the big thing is creating problems that aren't there or problems that have already been resolved. So, like the aforementioned slavery thing, you may have these people who now create a a career or a a presence online of being anti-slavery, where the slavery question, especially in the United States, was answered it was settled 155 150 years, years ago. ago. Right.
0: Well, let me throw out an idea that I think may be similar, but not exactly the same thing and see what you think about that. There was a, a graphic novel some years back called Kank. Uh, it was mostly specific to Toronto, so I don't know that it got much play outside of that. It was about a a notorious bicycle thief in that city, and it was a mostly unremarkable graphic novel, but there was this one part where uh, Kank, the the thief, is talking about how human beings seem to have an innate need for monkey factor, which was this sort of extreme f- fight or flight place where they are battling monsters of some kind and, you know, and, and tapping in to some kind of lizard brain reaction that is giving some kind of a, a dopamine high to them. The, you know, the extremes of life in one way or another that we don't have in the modern world. And yet we still, you know, we, we crave in one way or another. Yeah, I I mean, I think
2: that's close. Uh, I couldn't say it's a one-to-one, but it's pretty close. I mean, Ted opens his most, I think it's the manifesto opens with industrial society and its consequences have been a disaster for the human race. He comes from a, I guess you would call it anarcho-primitivism, big word. Basically, the concept, what Pete just outlined, is um, this return to the idea of a hunter-gatherer society. Um, Certainly, I think Ted had his ideas about how to either force that return or at least encourage it with sort of a propaganda of the deed, if you will, the the sending out of the bombs, Um, this idea that, well, if it works effectively for one person to do an act of terrorism, this is something Osama bin Laden really ran with, perhaps other acts of terrorism and other terrorists will rise up to do very much the same thing. This was his method to try and encourage people to get back to, uh, his vision of society in a more primitive fashion.
0: So this was his plan to the extent that he had one, that his actions were going to inspire a bunch of copycats, and with enough of them, the people who were driving forward the technologies that he thought were terrible and and, and causing these destructive uh, behaviors among human beings, that, that that would stop it. Correct.
2: Yeah, and he targeted... I don't know if he ever got to airlines. He targeted genome uh, researchers. Uh, he targeted big agro uh, people. He had set out with this idea that if you can shut down industrial society through fear of you know a mail bomb, um, it would slowly revert back. Um, yeah, I,
0: I would say so. Did he elaborate his vision of the the after? you know once once the you know the the, the institutions, the intellectual edifice has collapsed, then what? Did he talk about that?
1: Well, this is a, this goes to another subject that I like to study, which is um, the build up to the communist re- revolution in uh, Russia in 1917 is it was not going to happen overnight. It was going to be something that you're probably going to have to teach your kids how to do. And basically what, I mean, he would have been right now, if I were to interview him and he'd be People ask me, who who's the one person you want to interview? And I'm always, without hesitation, say Ted Kaczynski. Especially, I'd love to see what he has to say about the COVID, what's happened in the COVID era. And and by the way, he was just, apparently he got COVID and had to be taken um, taken for treatment. And I um, hope he's doing well, because he's getting old, a literal boomer. No Very pun, much so. No, no, pun, no pun intended. Um <laughs> he basically talked about a revolution to destroy technology where you would you would be raising your children to follow after you and he would not be against blowing up grids blowing up um, server farms um, just taking down and absolutely turn you have to turn to dust everything that technology has brought us to to the point that, it would be impossible. It would take centuries to replicate it. So you're not only taking down what exists, you're also taking down the knowledge of what exists and how to rebuild it. And he basically, if you, if I read it properly, he wants to take us back to, he thinks we need to go back to the Bronze Age.
2: I, I, would, I would even say, and I don't know this, I'm sure he, he's written more on it, but I would even say further back than that, because again, the issue, this is why we opened with it, is that we're trying to deal with the consequences of over-socialization. Um, that if we can get back to this hunter-gatherer mindset and that we concern ourselves with you know, the original position of hunting, killing, uh, traveling, fighting, uh, these things would, for him, at least cure the ills that technology progressively into the Industrial Revolution have brought out.
0: We're going to have to take a break here. We'll continue talking about Ted Kaczynski, the Unabomber, and his manifesto. I do want to note here that as we are having a fairly intellectual discussion about this, there were also real people who died. And I think it's worth noting that and and being conscious of the fact that we're talking about a a human being who, who killed other human beings. Welcome back to the Matt Asher Radio Show on Keystalk FM. I am talking with Pete Quinones. He has been on the show before, back when it was only a podcast, and he is a podcaster. And I'm also talking with another podcaster, Bird. Guys, when we uh, left off, we were talking about how the Unabomber was hoping to bring us back in time as a society to the days of the hunter-gatherer. That was his intention?
2: I would say in the very long term, uh, in order to cure this over-socialization problem that we've been talking about, uh, it would be necessary to um, exterminate all of the potential technologies that allow us to, in a sense, I think you could say make life easier, some people would say. Uh, For him, he might even use the term distraction, or it it takes us away from this um, always occupied position of the hunter-gatherer who's concerned with his next meal, his next hunt, things like that.
0: He himself lived a very simplified life for a long time, correct?
1: Yeah, he lived in a cabin in Lincoln, Montana that was sparse. I think it was 10 by 20. And that's where he basically had books. Um, A few of those books were about how to build bombs. And he built his bombs there. And he slept there. And he hunted. Uh, I know this from uh, interviews of people who lived around him. And he was friendly enough. And yeah, he lived the life that he, well, except for going to mail packages, um, he lived the life that he, you know, that, that he wanted to live, that he thought was the only way that humanity could live. And, um, you know, it's really weird thinking today that he'd probably, if he was, if he had his own podcast at the time, if stamps.com was like his <laughs> biggest advertiser, how the irony there.
0: That would be that would be definitely ironic. He, he lived in a way, though, that was probably very much, it, it was simple, but it was very much unlike the way that many of our ancestors lived who were in hunter-gatherer societies. They were almost certainly part of a, a tribe of some sort. He was not.
2: This was a, a thing, actually, that you talk about that that I always find interesting about Ted is probably due to psychological issues, I would say, I think a lot of people the conspiracy at least is that he developed a lot of his psychological issues because of he was being experimented on in these MK Ultra experiments. Um, he not only did he not really live uh, authentically as a primitivist would, um, you know, the, the high technology, um, advanced understanding of mathematics, these sorts of things, uh, but he utilized those pieces of knowledge that he had in order to further this long ideological goal that he had. Um, so whereas a lot of people who, I know primitivists, a lot of them are on the internet, ironically, you see more primitivists on the internet than you would probably meet in other places. Um, a lot of them do live a more authentic life as hunter-gatherers. Uh, Ted was comfortable to be in the cabin and to make the bombs and to get his manifesto published. So I, I think probably more than being a primitivist he was an ideologue is that fair
1: yes and the problem with that I've learned from reading the great James Burnham is that ideology never plays out in reality you're
0: well he certainly didn't achieve what he his stated goal most he... people don't no yeah I, I would
2: I would say he was never even close to doing it um, you had mentioned before, as we went to break, a lot of real people died, a lot of real people were maimed. I think if he had even gone further, he still would not have achieved his goal. I think one of the things Ted talks about, a lot of these technology skeptics talk about, is that the system itself adapts around these conditions. Um, and so even if Ted had continued and never been caught one way or another, I, I think the, the linchpin in his idea Of technology is that the technology often adapts around these problems so he's mailing bombs who who knows what sort of system would have developed in order to prevent this kind of thing probably advanced um, scanning of all packages that come in and
0: out well at some point the post office changed so that anything over I think it was a pound you had to like deliver in person right or to the post office itself right um, was that related to him or was that something else? I do remember they made some change that you couldn't just, you know, leave, you know, leave behind without actually talking to a, well, a you postal can, service worker, a very heavy package.
1: You can do that now. You can do, they have in post offices scales that you, machines that you can go up to and you put your box on it and you can mail it and they actually have a way to measure it. So you can put in the measurements as well, um, they make it so that you can only do that first class or priority. That's the only difference that I see. Like there's a um, a classification called media mail, which is how you would send books, records, stuff like that. Um, You can't, you have to go to the uh, counter for that, but you can do a heavy package um, automated or even printed at home. See, because now that you have the aforementioned stamps.com, Stamps.com. You can have a twenty-pound package and print out the.
0: But presumably you're trackable because your sure. your your postage meter is sure. is registered to you. But at any rate, that neither in some right. sense neither here nor there. The point is simply as you guys are stating that the system would not just indefinitely allow someone no, to take out other people.
1: It adapts definitely.
0: He was a very smart guy. Either he didn't anticipate that or at some point he realized it and decided his best move was to get out a, a manifesto instead of keep keep doing this as his primary mechanism of, of getting the word out that we needed to turn back.
1: Sure. And I think it's very interesting that even after the murders, the trial, the bombings, the manifesto, he keeps writing and... The government does nothing to hide what he writes. So like The Systems Need a Trick, which Bird and I read recently, it's a very short five page essay um, that made it out. He has a new book out just as of a couple years ago that's been published. And it's really interesting that a society that looks at what he did would still allow those ideas to get out there if i was in charge <laughs> i don't know that i would do that i don't i think i would probably fight that if i had the ability that well we don't want any more of his his teachings to get out there remember the washington post came under heavy fire for releasing it and now anything he writes i have a uh, what's called technological slavery volume 1 it has the manifesto in it and it has his letters which are very interesting to read as well. All of his correspondence is in it. So, taking into consideration everything that he did, I think it's really interesting that it's almost like somebody wants us to read it. That it could that it's still out there. That we can still read something that he wrote yesterday.
2: I, I think the greatest irony of it all is um, where I got the bo- the books from Amazon. <laughs> it's um i what i think pete is the system has no fear of these ideas a few people die somebody else uptakes this this you know like the scream movies right somebody's the next ted does it again i don't think the system is afraid of that at all even if it did happen i think the system is probably willing to allow a few people to die to adapt further to be able to catch that next person and then all of the contingencies, maybe even legislation that was put out in the pursuit of this next Ted would just be there in the future. Some other Patriot Act type
0: legislation
2: almost to the benefit. I think we've seen in the COVID era, especially fear is the engine behind a lot of policy now, uh, the most successful of policies that are the hardest to roll back. And I think uh, you, you said before, um, did Ted not see this coming? I don't know whether or not he did his manifesto was published and now you can buy it and maybe Jeff Bezos gets a kickback.
1: Yeah, I think it's interesting that he, in the system's neatest trick, he actually intimates that the system is going to adapt, that by by attack, really by attacking the system, you're perpetuating the system. Mm -hmm. Um, That because, and anti-government writers, um, you, you hear a Murray Rothbard write about how the system is designed for one thing to perpetuate itself.
0: Who is Murray Rothbard?
1: Murray Rothbard is the probably the most prolific libertarian writer of all time. He was known as Mr. Libertarian. Um, anyone who follows libertarian, uh, who calls himself a libertarian, follows his ideology even if they don't know it or not. Um, he's you know, just he went through a lot of phases in his life. He started out being influenced by the new left, um, well, by the old right, then by the new left, and then he just—he was somebody who like looked at the culture and then applied this anti-power, anti-government um, framework to it the whole the whole way through to his writings the whole way through. But even someone like Rothbard would say that the government has one job and that's to perpetuate itself and to grow. He he would call it a leviathan. It was just it would just keep going, and it would take everything along with it that would help to make it grow. I mean, it's really the government is a literal snowball rolling down a hill, just gathering more snow, so that by the time it makes it to the bottom of the hill, it's this gigantic boulder of snow, and then there's another hill for it to keep going and building its power.
0: I think there's an argument to be made that we are surrounded by institutions that have survived because they've put a huge emphasis on surviving, not necessarily on achieving any particular mission related to that that institution's kind of esprit de corps or whatever, but they survive because they focused on surviving and growing. Pete, maybe not to,
2: to take you too off topic, but this kind of gets into one of the things you've been talking about lately, the iron laws of
1: bureaucracy.
2: Yeah. Um, do you wanna like briefly explain that? I
1: mean uh, pornell's iron law of bureaucracy is like um, basically the if you have a if you have like, say there's two groups of people fighting to take over a, a like say a political party and one group is like heavily ideological and the other group is cares about just putting about the party everything is about the party the one who has the one who cares more about the party than the ideology is the more bureaucratic and they they always win because the ones who are ideological are worried about their ideology. The ones who are worried about the power and the bureaucracy that they get, they're the ones who are going to take control of it. And we're, we're actually seeing something like that in, happening in real life right now with the libertarian party. Yet the group, the ideological group doesn't realize that they're um, what they're, what they're in for.
0: Getting back to what Kaczynski was saying in terms of, well, let's just stay on that topic of power. What did he say about power in uh, in his manifesto?
1: It doesn't really have... Most of the power that he talks about is the power process, which is personal uh, to the individual. Um, in the manifesto, when he's talking about... Well, he talks about how these organizations, the government, everything, I mean, they are going to how they can use technology how they're going to use technology to keep their power to grow their power and there's another reason why why technology needs to be destroyed because government is never going to help people get past the surrogate activities and back into the power process they will just and he talks about the left talking about how their promotion of like social programs which basically make the people more reliant upon the government, how that even takes more away from the power process and then what are the what are the surrogate activities and then basically if somebody who's relying upon the government, relying upon the power in a certain area um, is going to perpetuate that is going to be is and if that if that government is perpetuating technology which we see the government is, Pushing for it gives grants to people who are developing technology further to AI, to um, Elon Musk's electric cars and his data and, and his Starlink, the Metaverse, and the, <laughs> and the Metaverse. Yeah, then may,
0: maybe even engineered viruses. Who knows? Oh, yeah.
1: Then anyone who you know power will increase technology, and to Ted, technology needs to be destroyed because the more technology we have. The less we participate in the power process, the less we participate in the power pro- process, the more miserable and the more unfulfilled we'll be, and the world around us just gets destroyed. You know, we're not even talking about his environmentalism at this point, because I actually think his environmentalism is <laughs> the least important part of his, uh, of his manifesto.
0: We're going to have to take another break here. When we get back, I want to ask you some more about his critiques of the left and how you see that being relevant today we'll be right back here on keystalk fm i am talking with bird and pete quinones welcome back to the matt asher radio show on keystalk fm I am talking with two podcasters, Bird and Pete Quinones, who has been on the show before, back when it was a podcast. And if you want to find that and all of the various episodes that have been posted before, just go to mattasher.com slash 2022. Before the break... We were about to talk about the, uh, the role of critique of leftism in the Unabomber Manifesto, and we are talking about Ted Kaczynski, the Unabomber, today. Pete, I think you had some additional thoughts on his critiques of the left.
1: The left gets bogged down in going after every little every project that they come up with isn't a problem. So you see things today like transgender rights. Okay, what percentage of the population is transgender? One Less than 1%? Why is this something that's important? Well, it's something that's important because, one, I think it causes chaos, which I think that's one of the jobs of leftism, is to cause chaos because it... Tr- It takes away from any kind of traditionalism, and I'm not saying Ted's a traditionalist, but I'm just using it as an example of something that he would talk about. He would talk about how, what I said before, oh, slavery, oh, what a problem racism is, Um, what a problem feeding the the hungry is, although how many, really, when you start breaking it down in this country, if somebody's hungry, they really want to be. There's many places that they can go, even privately funded, to get fed. And one of Ted's biggest problems, I believe with the left is what he's looking at. He, I think he honestly believes that the left would be his most natural ally in his fight if it weren't for the fact that they're so over socialized that every time somebody comes up with something, they're just, you know, like the racism thing. It's distracting from the real problem, and that's technology. I think he would say that the reason there's racism, the reason there's hunger, the reason is he blame, would blame it all on technology, would blame on the disruption of the power process. So Ted starts off the manifesto with a criticism of the left and a, a great breakdown strangely he ends it with another criticism of the left and he goes back into the fact that they get distracted by these things and it and in the end of the manifesto the thing that i think a lot of people start reading it they get past the left part and they put it down some people have broken into the power process and surrogate activities and then put it down i don't think there's a lot of people who've read it all the way to the end what he says at the end is he goes when you decide to take this revolution to destroy technology when you take this on you can't include anyone from the left everyone you recruit has to come from the right and that's when you get when you get to the end and you read that you're like wait you mean the right now who's getting defeated by you know who has le- who have less political power than guys who women who guys who think they're women and people who think that men can get pregnant and have periods I mean the right is and this is all this will always be my criticism of the right is the right doesn't know the power that they have and Ted says that it must be helped from the right and funny little story here I was talking with um, a new friend of mine who uh, he's power broker behind the scenes for certain people. He's worked with Julian Assange and he's worked with a couple of people. And he was telling me that, you know, he was a leftist activist back in the day. So like in the the late 80s, early 90s, they would do stuff like go into logging camps and put sugar in gas tanks and, you know, destroy tires and stuff like that. And he said that the overwhelming majority of the people he worked with weren't leftist they were gun carrying rightists who cared about the environment and i think that's who ted's that that's who ted's writing to he knows these people exist at the time that he's writing this and he's like i need we need the right the right has to forget about the left we need the right we actually need to fight against the left we need the right to step forward and destroy technology and as somebody who doesn't want to do this who thinks that if we really understand, the, start to understand the power process and we start to try to refill that with you know, maybe a move back to nature. I think that it's very interesting to me that as COVID started and went forward, a lot of people who lived in or near big cities found the best way to fight it was to get out and to go more rural. And I'm talking about going from I went from a town of four million to a town of 25,000, and I still think that that's too big. <laughs> so, a lot of people, to fight COVID and everything that was happening, did a mini version of TED and went backwards in time and said, "Okay, we're we're I'm going to go and I'm going to buy a phone. I, I talked to somebody when I was in New York recently, and they came up to me and they said. I live in New York City, but I'm getting out, I bought a farm and we're gonna go and we're gonna start growing our own food and everything. And I'm like, this is a, a version of what Ted is talking about and people are doing it without even knowing you know, what Ted is talking about. The way they're fighting this overarching, I mean, this insane growth in technology. You have mRNA technology, you have all these new medical technologies coming out, you have all these new ways of surveilling people And the way to fight it is people are like, well, I'm just going to get away from this. And Ted finishes it off by saying the left is lost. Concentrate. If if you're going to take up this fight against technology, it's going to have to be fought from the right. And I don't want this to be fought. I I want it to be mitigated. But what I would say is now when I look at like COVID tyranny, And what I think is coming is global warming tyranny. They're going to use global warming as a way to grow the state even more and go beyond even what they did with COVID. The right needs to step up and fight this and desire power. People who want to be politicians from the right, stop getting elected and cutting taxes. That's not what we need. We need you to take power and build power and crush your enemies and stop these people stop them dead in their tracks because what they want to what they want to create what you've seen in the last 24 months they want that to be permanent and they want it to be worse they want you locked in your house they already new delhi new delhi has already started lockdowns for climate change for smog for things like that they've done that recently Recently, somebody in Canada was hospitalized, and their cause the cause of why they were hospitalized was they were diagnosed with climate change. We're living in insane times, and this is coming from the left. The right needs to step up and they need to take power and do what the left does. Get power. Don't care about changing anything, just get more power and get more power and get all the power so that you can just do any you can defeat this left insanity by fiat. And just stop it in his tracks. I think Ted would like that.
0: It's it's interesting that you talk about how so many people ended up following in a in a miniature way the Ted Kaczynski path, certainly of moving out of the bigger population centers and moving to a smaller place. I did the same thing, although Getting out of a city wasn't necessarily my first thought. It was just getting out of Toronto and the the COVID regime there and coming to a place here in Florida that is for the moment free and open. But I very often do think about the fact that doing something like that, fleeing from a, a population center or from a more lockdown place to a less lockdown place, it certainly buys me time or it buys us time, people who do it, and certainly some level of self sufficiency buys you time as well. But the the advancing steamroller doesn't stop. And, you know, maybe maybe all that's happened is the, you know, the place where you can kind of be left alone used to be there. And now it's a smaller set of places. And a lot of people have moved to those places. But it's, you know, it's, it's going to keep ratcheting up that pressure until eventually it, kind of blankets the world, I think, and one of the topics that's come up fairly often on my show is the Amish. I think it's an interesting case of a group of people who've decided to live with technology in a very deliberate way, in a very social way, actually, in that it's a consensus, a decentralized consensus model where the groups of people decide what level of technology they want to live with they their own response to the uh, the covid sort the, the advance of covid was to well they have a, a ritual in which they pass around wine and they all drink it and they continued that ritual early on in the pandemic and they all got it um And went on with their lives. And that's, in in some sense, nice to see. It would have been nice if they had access to treatments for it. uh, But a lot of them didn't want to go to the hospital because they would be separated from their loved ones uh, because of the rules that were in place at the time. And, you know, they thought that being separated from your loved ones was worse than the possibility of dying. Um, So a lot of them avoided the hospitals. I don't know what net effect that had on the mortality of it, but I, I look at those kind of populations and say they're, they're outside of the scope of, of the line of fire right now of the advancing regime, but I don't know that even that, those kind of smaller populations living rurally as they do, uh, at some point the line of sight will target them as it targets everybody.
2: Yeah, I, I, we were talking about this not long ago. Um, the Amish are a particular example, you know, not to denigrate them, but a particular example of people who live a certain way because the rest of society uh, supports and allows them to do so. Uh, that is one issue with that type of lifestyle is it's is a borrowed time sort of lifestyle. So I, I, I'm i in complete agreement with Pete. There has got to be a, a more active defense of whatever particular life lifestyle that you want. Um I, I would say that the disengagement with politics um, only works if you are afforded the ability to do so. After 24 months of COVID, very few people are able to disengage from politics or its consequences. I would personally say it would be better to accumulate the power. Um, whatever personal lifestyle you and your family are living can continue that way, but um, to be either ignorant or unwilling to take power and exercise it to defend the lifestyle that you live in, I think you're um, really hoping that society doesn't turn on you, which inevitably it will.
0: We're out of time here on the radio part of the show. Are you guys okay to stick around for just a little bit for the podcast-only segment? That'd be great. I think there's a lot more to talk to, so we'll leave it there. I do want to mention one more time, as I like to do, when talking uh, about, uh, at an intellectual level, about something that happened that had a very direct impact on people's lives, that cost people's lives, that we're also recognizing that the uh, person we're talking about, Ted Kaczynski, who wrote uh, a very interesting manifesto, was also a, a murderer, Thanks, guys, for coming on. Oh, and before we wrap up here in the radio, is there anything that you want to plug? Where can uh, where can listeners find your shows? Um,
2: any podcatcher you can find. Type in Timeline Earth. If you like uh, raunchy comedy and um, making fun of our president, uh, your president, <laughs>
1: yeah. uh, you can definitely check that out. The Pete Quinono Show, all podcatchers, YouTube. It's a Q-U-I-N-O-N-E-S.
0: Thanks, guys. Welcome back to the Matt Asher Show After Party, otherwise known as The Filter Podcast. I am still talking with Bird and Pete Quinones. And I think, Bird, you have something of a similar story in terms of fleeing hey. the uh, COVID regime yes. to come to uh, here to the free state of Florida.
2: Oh, yeah. Um, I am... I currently live in a building where I am the only English as a primary language speaker. The rest is Spanish. About 99% of my building is Cubans. And I feel a lot of uh, affinity towards that because many of them are expats who fled when communism took over. Their kids are here now. Um, I, uh, it's, it's been very interesting because I feel quite in a similar way where in, um, you know, I'm 25 years old. And for those 25 years, I lived in New York. And it was one way for about 24 and a half of those years. And at some point amidst COVID and amidst the, um, we'll call it a reign of Bill de Blasio, a reign, um, things, I mean, they went off the deep end. They completely went off the deep end. Um, it's hard to even explain. I'm, I'm sure when you you left, there, there was probably a million reasons that you could have pointed to to be like, everything's crazy now, the, the way that it is. And, um, I am now here in Florida, um, been, received a wonderful welcome from all of my Floridian friends, um, really taking in the environment, the space that I live in. Um, it's been amazing how in such a short time I've fallen into the Florida man archetype. Um, I feel, uh, and I said this, I was doing a, a um, on Twitter, uh, I was doing this uh, driving down I-95 where I missed that uh, blizzard in Virginia by one day, otherwise I would have been caught there for a long time. I was doing this uh, tweet along, so every time I would hit a new city or a new uh, area I would tweet, hey, I'm here now. People were following along and doing that, and I think my last tweet before I was like, let me put it away now. I'm gonna put it away for some time and just uh, get involved, dive in, uh, was a big eulogy to New York. thanking it for how it raised me. I'm from Queens, if you couldn't tell by the accent. Um, Mets fan my whole life. And just the immediacy of coming down to Florida. I've been to Florida many times. I half grew up here between the ages of zero and 12. I was probably here for four to six months out of the year up in Fort Lauderdale. And the immediacy of becoming a resident down here and the feeling of the change the sense of freedom the sense of an independence from what's going on in Washington firstly and at the governor's office secondarily is noticeable and i'm sure a lot of the my neighbors who i live with the cuban expats felt very much the same way when they set foot on florida land i um I'm nothing but grateful. I think it's been an incredible experience so far. I uh, am currently dealing with the difficulties of uh, changing over my insurance, getting a license, my license plate, so that I can vote, so that I can take part in the elections, um, so that I can get a concealed carry license. And um, I think all of these things are necessary and essential to my personal development and to my desire to assist the free state of Florida in its project to remain out of the grip of Washington firstly and out of the hands of the left secondarily and things are going very well so far.
0: When you're talking about that process it it brought me back to that feeling of being on in Ontario when you know when things were getting crazy when the shit was hitting the fan and in particular to the feeling that so many people were essentially captured by the political process the way that the uh the um So the premier of of Ontario operated was to, every Friday, put out this announcement where he would kind of lay down the law as far as what were the new regulations going to be? Were we going from code red to code green, Mm -hmm. stage three to four? Were the schools closing? Were they reopening? And what it created was a situation in which you had essentially a captive and captured audience who whose lives were in this weird state of you know not alive not dead waiting for the governor to tell them if they could go to restaurants waiting for the governor to tell them if their kids were going to go back to school after the breaks it was often the thing that they would you know they would go to spring break and then not come back because that was like a natural you've been out for you know a week so we're just going to pull you out of school for the rest of the year or whatever those those moments were the moments often when they would just uh cancel you know classes for another 2 weeks or 3 weeks. And so it was it you created a, you know, a, inevitably these people who just were were dependent on what he was going to say, and you had, of course, factions that developed who were, you know, who were who were afraid that he might, you know, lift restrictions, who were afraid that he might let the kids go back to school, and then, of course, lots and lots of parents who didn't know until like the night before school started whether their kids were going to be back in school. And imagine, of course, if you, you know, if uh, it, my this this impacted uh it impacted us you know at the time my daughter was uh uh, 16 when this began so in, in her high school years were affected by it it was not as big a deal for us because she didn't need childcare care uh, during the day and I did a lot of work from home as does, did her mom so it wasn't but for for you know for millions of people within the province their their lives were completely caught up and captured by this political process where every Friday they found out what their life would look like for the next week or two weeks or whatever I'll, I'll do you one better.
2: All of that happened in New York State, and my governor won an Emmy for it. You remember this? Every day, Cuomo would get up on stage, and he would do the rundown. CNN was very kind to put the growing number of people dying or sick on the corner so that it would really it would really overlap well. And eventually, at the end of doing those fireside chats, or the bedside chats, as I like to call them, um, he won an Emmy over it. Uh, it was, and now he's a disgraced, I mean, he always was, but now he's truly disgraced. And uh, so that was the situation that I was coming out of exactly the same as you said, except whatever the mainstream culture is decided it was Emmy worthy. It was something that was done so well that it was, it was a profound moment in the history of television, which it certainly was. It captured a lot of people. Um, and it had this really nefarious effect of, um, you know, oh, it's like your grandfather up there, and he just wants the best for you. And really all he was doing was saying what the new restrictions would be and doing an endless amount of damage psychologically to children being pulled out of school, forced to stay home, doing an endless amount of damage to people who had drug addictions, who had to feed their addictions even worse because they couldn't leave the house, um, the failing infrastructure, all of the things that I could possibly say. About, and, and, and remember, that's just the governor. Bill de Blasio, the mayor, had an even worse effect on the city itself. But um, yeah, so when, when you say that, all I can think to is those bedside chats he would get up to every single day, and he was awarded
0: for it. Pete, you, you grew up in, uh, in the New York City area, right? What, what does it look like to you, kind of the destruction of what looks like to me, the destruction of a, maybe one of the world's greatest cities ever?
1: Yeah, I grew up in the Bronx, and um, I mean, I grew up there. I, I left two, two days after I graduated high school. I went up for the first time in September of 2020. So I I went up there in 2020 and I was staying on the Lower East Side. It was about a third of the people normally out um, on the streets. Everyone's wearing a mask. I wasn't wearing a mask. Um, People looking at you like you're completely insane. I went up to, I met my friend Carl up in Times Square at like 11 a.m. on a Tuesday it was literally like I am legend. It was like <laughs> yes. it was empty except for like a couple cops and a couple homeless people. We walked up Broadway. We crossed over to Rockefeller Center. There's no one hanging out at Rockefeller Center. We walk up, walked up uh, Park Ave, and hardly encountered anyone. We finally got to 59th Street and we crossed, went back over to Columbus Circle. We started encountering people because now, you know. Central Park South um, has, or is that Central Park North? That's Central Park South. South. Central Central Park South has dwellings, buildings. So we start seeing people. Get over to Columbus Circle, and you start seeing people, but wasn't as much as, I mean, nowhere near as what there would be. Um, There were police there. Carl and I, I just happened to mention, like, um, I was talking about Kaczynski and everything, and I was talking about how easy it is to build bombs, and like there was a cop like in ear earshot of what, and they weren't even paying attention to us. It was just the most bizarre thing. And then I I went back and we were hanging out. This was just this October, mm-hmm. October twenty twenty one, and now it's the COVID regime in Manhattan. So it's like not only do you have to wear a mask, but you have to have your vax card mm-hmm. and everything. And luckily I had a quote unquote vax card to show. And um you know then I once I left, I went up there for an event and it was an event I promised I would I said I was going to go to it was an event that was delayed by two years because oh my of God. COVID. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And you know, then I when I got back, I was like, "Screw this Vax card," and ripped it up and threw it away.
2: So you'll be going back soon.
1: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's just seeing New York just being destroyed, but knowing that I don't know why, but I have faith that the people up there, well, in the outer boroughs, like I was in Queens in in 2021 in October, just a few months ago, and. You'd go into a store and it would be like, you have to have a vax card. You see the sign. You have to wear a mask. And you walk in, you're not wearing a mask. They don't care. No No one's asking you for anything. And um, I'm hoping it'll bounce back. But I'm very familiar with New York City politics. My mom worked for a state senator in New York when I was growing up. And I, I just know the corruption. I know the level of where it's at and who runs New York. And... If it's gonna come back, it's it's gonna take the people to do it, and the people there seem to all be members of the COVID religion.
2: This this was my big problem with the stay and fight mentality. Yeah, that's so unfortunate. There's this mentality of people who, yeah, I, I am the opposite of this. I love I loved New York City. I still love the culture there and many of the people there, but they are would we say hopeless? Yeah. I I don't know what what uh, over socialized over socialized Um, there's the there's the mentality of some individuals uh, you know valiant people who are protesting in front of City Hall over the fax mandate which was struck down uh, by a New York state court now finally some good news for them Uh, after immense damage was done people have lost their jobs plenty of private businesses are deciding to continue those mandates as well. I just, the the culture is not up to it and I don't think the culture ever will be up to it. So when I personally when I hear somebody say why don't you just stay and fight from New York. Now I understand why a Floridian or a Texan would say why don't you just stay and fight. I understand that.
0: <laughs> I, Eventually you come to the very edge and then you don't have what are you fighting any for? choice. Yeah. Which is which is the Keys in in Florida. <laughs> but the the stand uh fight thing is very interesting i did uh, i was part of some of the protests early on there sure. in ontario but from the very beginning one of the things i thought about uh the most i am from a, a jewish household was the story of passover which is essentially one big lesson that too early is better than too late and this is actually to me a very profound lesson that has to do with um You know, obviously one of the reasons I think that this is uh, one of the, the, you know, the central lessons of the Passover service that we do every year is the, you know, the history of Jews in various parts of the world where they decided that it wasn't yet too late and they stuck around and then came to a point where they couldn't leave, where it was no longer permitted. And related to that, Canada is now... In many ways, you are not permitted to even leave unless you've been vaccinated. Um, so for some people, it's gotten to be uh, too late without uh, without either doing that or resorting to some other measures to try to get out of the country. But that that idea of you know of, of you need to recognize when. The the too early is better than too late in yep. investing At, as yeah, well. Every time. Very often, every time. Uh, too early to pulling out of the market before the crash. Even if you're a little bit early and you don't time it perfectly, that's way better than trying to pull out after the crash, right? And the same with as you were saying that about those places, right? And I thought about that a lot early on in the pandemic. That you know that that take that window when you can while you still can to you know to do the flight if it looks like fighting is not going to work. And it became right apparent to me pretty early on that the energy wasn't there. It may finally be coming now two years later to, you know, to to Canada to to fight. But um, but it it is, you do have to recognize that if you're in a losing battle, that, you know, get out and get out quick, um, unless you think you can do some actual damage that's going to be worthwhile in terms of fighting. Makes me think of the
2: sunk cost fallacy. Just plenty of people who, well, I put my time and investment and my history is here, so I have to fight for that time investment and history, and they do, and they fight, and they fight. And after a while, either the fighting can't be done because there's not enough support, or the thing you're fighting for is so changed and destroyed, you've lost, even if you win the fight, you've lost so much. I, I think that, well, I would, I would, I would probably say, certainly don't like people who say stay and fight. What I think would be better is find the places that don't have to fight because the culture is aligned. Free state of Florida, mostly aligned. First time Republicans have been the majority in registration in a very long time. Go there and apply your efforts there and maintain something that has already been built up. To me, seems to make more sense. You get what you want. And the people there who are looking to prevent the swell of, um, you know, this idea that the people from California ruined California, now they come here, the people from New York ruined New York, now they come here, will be the opposite. I mean, if I could do anything, I think one of my, as I was coming down here, a native Floridian messaged me and he said, just make sure that you're registered to vote. And my response was, if I could do it. Anything, the easiest thing for me to do would be to counterbalance the other New Yorker coming here who actually did contribute to ruining the place. And I don't think that that's most New Yorkers who are coming down here. I think plenty of New Yorkers, at least Pete, you saw, the culture of people supports a lot of the things going on. They're not not really concerned with moving as much. It's the people who, like me, who are looking around and going, this place is completely different, destroyed even, who are moving out. I think there's plenty of people like me who are willing to contribute to supporting a place that is more aligned with what they believe rather than people coming down to try and wreck this place too certainly i think again if i could be the counterbalance for a person who thinks like that that is probably the least i could do
0: i i think that that's the vibe i've gotten mostly from the you know the new people to have shown up here in the in the year since i've been here i actually even want to go further than that in terms of the message of of moving in that it is to some extent, actually, to a large extent, I think, immoral to to stay and fight if you think you're going to lose, Correct. because you are your money is going to the government that is oppressing you. Your money is paying for that regime, you're living there. you are voting with your feet for the policies in that place, and there may be no utopia out there, there may be no perfect place where you can go and not feel like any of your dollars are being used in any bad way, but certainly if you have a a kind of a stark contrast of one place versus the other, I think you actually have a moral obligation to make sure your energies, your effort, your money, your physical person is in the place that supports your values, to to the extent that that is possible for you and your family. Totally
2: agree. Like when in Rome, do as the Romans do. Don't get in the way. I think if Florida culture is the way that it is, um, no matter what you think, you came here for a reason. You came here to receive um, asylum, practically, from the policies of New York. Get in line. Do as they do.
0: Any other thoughts, Pete? Make DeSantis king. That's a good one. (laughs) Mm-hmm. Thanks, guys, for coming on the show. Thank you.
1: Thank you.